following chapter is taken from an earnest ministry, The Need of the Times. John Angel James Illustrations of Earnestness Collected from various authors Familiars, most readers of this work are, with examples of the kind of manner intended. It will help to illustrate and enforce its nature if a few extracts from different authors are here introduced by way of specimens. Those which are here presented are not selected as possessing anything very extraordinary, or as being the best of the kind that could be selected from the same authors, but they are sufficient to answer the purpose, nor are they exhibited as models to be in every particular imitated in modern composition, but as being marked by that one quality of intense earnestness, which it is the object of this work to recommend. The first extract, which shall be quoted, is from a sermon of Thomas Doolittle. This eminent minister of Christ was ejected by the Act of Uniformity in the year 1662. He was a man of extraordinary courage, power, and success in preaching, and after his expulsion from his living, educated young men for the ministry. The extract which follows is taken from a discourse contained in that valuable series called The Morning Exercises, or Sermons at Cripplegate, and is entitled How Should We Eye Eternity? so that it may have its influence on all we do. It is perhaps the most solemn sermon in the English or any other language, the sickly sentimentalism, which would never mention hell, to polite ears, should be renounced with as much disgust as gross familiarity with such solemn realities. It was not only Thomas Doolittle's fault, but it was a vice of the age to approach somewhat too near to the latter extreme. But then, after this admission is made, let us look at the burning and overwhelming earnestness of the sermon. Quote, Is there an eternal state, such unseen eternal joys and torments, who then can sufficiently lament the blindness, madness, and folly of this perishing world? any unreasonableness of those that have rational and eternal souls, to see them busily employed in the manners of time, which are only for time, in present honors, pleasures, and profits, while they neglect everlasting things. Everlasting life and death is before them. Everlasting joy or torment is near at hand, and yet poor sinners take no care how to avoid the one or obtain the other. Is it not a matter of lamentation to see so many thousands bereaved of the sober, serious use of their minds, that while they use their reason to get the riches of this world, they will not act as rational men to get the joys of heaven? They will avoid temporal calamities, and yet not escape eternal misery. Or if they be fallen into present afflictions, they contrive how they may get out of them. If they are sick, reason tells them they must use the means if they would be well. If they are in pain, nature puts them on to seek after a remedy. And yet these same men neglect all duty and cast away all care concerning everlasting manners. 
therefore worldly pleasures and profits which are passing from them in the enjoyment of them. But the unseen eternal glories of heaven they neither seek nor think of. Are they unjustly charged? Let conscience speak what thoughts they lie down with upon their pillow. If they wake, or sleep flies from them in the silent night, what a noise does the care of the world make in their souls? With what thoughts do they rise in the morning? Of God, or of the world? Of the things of time, or of eternity? Their thoughts are in their shops before they have been in heaven, and many desires after visible temporal gain, before they have had one desire after the invisible eternal God and treasures that are above. What do they do all the day long? What is it that has their endeavors, all their labor, and time, their most painful industry, and unwearied diligence? Alas, their consciences will tell themselves, and their practices tell others. When there is trading, but no praying, buying and selling, but no godly duties performed, the shop book is often opened, but the sacred book of God is not looked into all the week long. O Lord, forgive the hardness of my heart, that I can see such insufferable folly among reasonable creatures, and can lament this folly no more. Good Lord, forgive the lack of compassion in me, that can stand and see this madness in the world, as if the most of men had lost their wits and were quite beside themselves, and yet my affections yearn no more towards immortal souls that are going to unseen miseries in the eternal world, to see foolish, unthinking men busy in doing things that tend to no account. Is it not such an amazing sight as to see men that have reason for the world, to not use it for God and Christ, and their own eternal good, to see them love and embrace a present ash-heap world, and cast away all serious, affecting, and effectual thoughts of the life to come, to see them rage against the God of heaven, and cry out against holiness as foolish preciseness, and serious godliness as madness and melancholy. Let us call the whole creation of God to lament, and bewail the folly of man, that was made the best of all God's visible works, but now, by such wickedness, is bad beyond them all, being made by God for an everlasting state, and yet minds nothing less than that for which it was principally made. O son, why is it not your burden to give light to men to do those works, and walk in those ways that bring them to eternal darkness? O earth, why do you not groan to bear such burdensome fools that dig into your mind for gold and silver while they neglect everlasting treasures in the eternal world? O oh, you sheep and oxen, fish and fowl, why do you not cry out against those that take away your life to maintain them in their being, but only mind present things, and forget the eternal God that gave them dominion over you? to live upon you while they had time to mind eternal things, but they do not. O oh, you angels of God and blessed saints in heaven, were you capable of grief and sorrow? 
Would you not bitterly lament the sin and folly of poor mortals upon earth? Could you look down from that blessed place where you dwell and behold the joy and glory which is to us unseen and see how it is basely slighted by the sons of men? If you were not above sorrow and mourning, would not you take this up for a bitter lamentation? O you saints on earth, whose eyes are open to see what the blind, deluded world does not see. Let your heads be fountains of water, and your eyes send forth rivers of tears for the great neglect of eternal joys and happiness of heaven. Can you see men going out of time into eternity in their sin and in their blood, in their guilt and unconverted state, and your hearts not be moved, your affections not yearn, have you spent all your tears and bewailing your own sin that your eyes are dry when you behold such monstrous madness and unparalleled folly of so many with whom daily you converse? You holy parents, have you no pity for your ungodly children? Godly children, have you no pity for your ungodly parents? End quote. The next extract I shall present is from Richard Baxter, under whose ministry Thomas Doolittle was converted, and from whom he appears to have borrowed his own manner of preaching. Quote, O sirs, there are no trifles or jesty manners that the gospel speaks of. I must tell you that when I have the most serious thoughts of these things, I am ready to wonder that such amazing manners do not overwhelm the souls of men that the greatness of the subject does not so overmatch our understandings and affections as even to drive men beside themselves, but that God has always somewhat allayed it by distance. Much more do I wonder that men should be so blockish as to make light of such things. O Lord, that men did but know what everlasting glory and everlasting torments are, would they then hear us as they do? Would they read and think of these things as they do? I profess I have been ready to wonder when I have heard such weighty things delivered, how people can forbear crying out in a congregation, and much more do I wonder how they can rest until they have gone to their ministers and learned what they shall do to be saved, that this great business should be put out of doubt. Oh, that heaven and hell should have no greater effect upon men Oh, that eternity should affect them no more. Oh, how can you forbear when you are alone to think with yourselves what it is to be an everlasting joy or torment? I wonder that such thoughts do not break your sleep, and that they do not crowd into your minds when you are about to labor. I wonder how you can almost do anything else, how you can have any quietness in your minds, how you can eat drink, or rest, until you've got some ground of everlasting consolations. Is that a man, or a corpse, that is not affected with manners of this significance, that can be readier to sleep than to tremble when he hears how he must stand at the judgment bar of God? Is that a man or a clod of clay who can rise up and lie down without being deeply affected with his everlasting state? Who can follow his worldly business and make nothing of the great business of salvation or damnation? And that when he knows it, 
is so near at hand. Truly, sirs, when I think of the weight of the manor, I wonder at the best saints upon earth that they are no better and do no more in so weighty a case. I wonder at those whom the world accounts more holy than necessary and scorns for making so much ado that they can put off Christ and their souls with so little. They do not pour out their souls in every prayer, that they are not more taken up with God, that their thoughts are not more serious in preparation for their last account. I wonder that they are not a thousand times more strict in their lives, more laborious and unwearied for the crown of glory than they are. And for myself, as I am ashamed of my dull and careless heart, and of my slow and unprofitable course of life, so the Lord knows I am ashamed of every sermon that I preach, when I think what I am and who sent me, and how much the salvation and damnation of men is concerned in it. I am ready to tremble lest God should judge me a slighter of the truth and the souls of men, and lest in my best sermons I should be guilty of their blood. Methinks we should not speak a word to men in manners of such consequence without tears, or the greatest earnestness that possibly we can. Were we not too much guilty of the sin which we reprove, it would be so. Whether we are alone or in company, methinks our end and such an end should still be in our mind, as before our eyes, and we should sooner forget anything or set light by anything, or by all things, and by this. The next extract is from the Puritan John Howe. Quote, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Oh, what a soul have I, which can love anything else, which can love trifles, which can love impurities, which can love sin, but cannot love God, Christ, and heaven. Oh, what a soul have I, no lover of God, no lover of God. Oh, my soul, what will become of you? Pity yourself. Where are you to have your eternal abode? To what regions of horror and woe are you going? What society can be fit for you? What but of infernal accursed spirits who are at an utmost distance from God? and to whom no beam of holy vital light shall ever shine to all eternity. You, O my soul, are self-abandoned to the blackness of darkness forever. Your doom is in your bosom, your own bosom. You're not loving God as your own doom, your eternal doom. It creates you a present hell and shows where you belong. End quote. The next extract is from Jonathan Edwards' sermon on pressing into the kingdom of God. This extraordinary man presents a remarkable proof and illustration of the most acute logician and a most earnest preacher. His sermons are some of the most impressive and alarming we have, but certainly not a little lacking in the tenderness and melting pathos of the gospel of salvation. They may be read with admirable effect to teach us how to expound in nature and enforce the obligations of the moral law so as to awaken the slumbering conscience of the unconverted sinner. His astonishing usefulness shows the adaptation of his preaching to the age and state of society in which he lived. 
but this method could not be rigidly followed, except in its earnestness in the present day. Quote, I would address myself to such as yet remain unawakened. It is a dreadful thing that there should be any one person remaining secure among us at such a time as this, but yet it is to be feared that there are some of this sort. I would here a little expostulate with such people. When do you expect that it will be more likely that you shall be awakened and wrought upon than now? You are in a Christless condition, and yet without doubt intend to go to heaven, and therefore intend to be converted some time before you die. But this is not to be expected until you are first awakened and deeply concerned about the welfare of your soul and brought earnestly to seek God's converting grace. And when do you intend that this shall be? How do you lay things out in your own mind? Or what projection have you about this manner? Is it ever so likely that a person will be awakened at such a time as this? How do we see many who before were secure now roused out of their sleep and crying, What shall we do to be saved? But yet... You are secure. Do you flatter yourself that it will be more likely you should be awakened when it is a dull and dead time? Do you lay manners out thus in your own mind, that though you are senseless when others are generally awakened, that yet you shall be awakened when others are generally senseless? Or do you hope to see another such time of the pouring out of God's Spirit hereafter? And do you think it will be more likely that you should be wrought upon then, than now? And why do you think so? Is it because then you shall be so much older than you are now? And so that your heart will be grown softer and more tender with age? Or because you will then have stood out so much longer against the calls of the gospel and all the means of grace? Do you think it more likely that God will give you the needed influences of his spirit then, then now, because then you will have provoked him so much more and your sin and guilt will be so much greater. And do you think it will be any benefit to you to stand it out through the present season of grace as proof against the extraordinary means of awakening there are? Do you think that this will be a good preparation for a saving work with the Spirit hereafter? What means do you expect to be awakened by? As to the awakening solemn things of the Word of God, you have had those set before you times without number, in a most moving manner that the preachers of the Word have been capable of. As to particular solemn warnings, directed to those that are in your circumstances, you have had them frequently, and have them now from time to time. Do you expect to be awakened by solemn providences? Those also you have lately had of the most awakening nature one after another. Do you expect to be moved by the death of others? We have lately had repeated instances of these. There have been deaths of old and young. The year has been remarkable for the deaths of young people in the bloom of life and some of them very sudden death. Will the conversion of others move you? There is indeed scarce anything that is found to have so great a tendency to stir people up as this, and this you have been tried with of late and frequent instances. 
but are hitherto armored against it. Will the general pouring out of the Spirit, and seeing a concern about salvation among all sorts of people do it? The means that you now have had no effect. Yes, you have all these things together. You have the solemn warnings of God's word, and solemn instances of death, and the conversion of others. And you see a general concern about salvation, but altogether you're not moved to any great concern about your own precious, immortal, and miserable soul. Therefore consider by what means it is that you expect ever to be awakened. You have heard that it is probable some who are now awakened will never obtain salvation. How dark then does it look upon you who remain obdurate and unawakened? Those who are not moved at such a time as this come to a dull age, have reason to fear whether they are not given up to judicial hardness. I do not say they have reason to conclude it, but they do have reason to fear it. How dark does it look upon you that God comes and knocks at so many people's doors and misses yours, that God has given the strivings of a spirit so generally among us, while you are left senseless. Do you expect to obtain salvation without ever seeking it? If you are sensible that there is a necessity of your seeking in order to obtaining, and ever intend to seek, one would think you could not avoid it at such a time as this. Inquire, therefore, whether you intend to go to heaven, living all your days a secure, negligent, careless life, or do you think you can bear the damnation of hell? Do you imagine that you can tolerably endure the devouring fire and everlasting burnings? Do you hope that you shall be able to grapple with the vengeance of God Almighty? when he girds himself with strength and clothes himself with wrath. Do you think to strengthen yourself against God and to be able to make your part good with him? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 22 Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do you flatter yourself that you shall find out ways for your ease and support and to make it out tolerably well? to bear up your spirit in those everlasting burnings that are prepared for the devil and his angels, Ezekiel 22, verse 14. Can your heart endure? Can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? It is a difficult thing to conceive what such Christless people think that are unconcerned at such a time. End quote. The following extract is from the first of all preachers, George Whitfield and who that considers the circumstances under which these flaming words were enunciated, and the feeling and action which accompanied their delivery, and wonder at the effects they produced. Quote, oh, my brethren, my heart is enlarged towards you. I trust I feel something of the hidden but powerful presence of Christ while I am preaching to you. Indeed, it is sweet. It is exceedingly comfortable. All the harm I wish you, who without cause are my enemies, is that you felt the like. Believe me, though it would be hell to my soul to return to a natural state again, yet I would willingly change states with you for a little while, that you might know what it is to have Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith. Do not turn your backs. Do not let the devil hurry you away. Be not afraid of convictions. Do not think worse of the doctrine because preached outside the church walls. 
Our Lord in the days of his flesh preached on a mountain, in a ship, and in a field, and I am persuaded many have felt his gracious presence here. Indeed, we speak what we know. Do not reject the kingdom of God against yourselves. Be so wise as to receive our witness. I cannot, I will not let you go. Stay a little, let us reason together. However lightly you may esteem your souls, I know our Lord has set an unspeakable value on them. He thought them worthy of his most precious blood. I beseech you, therefore, O sinners, be reconciled to God. I hope you do not fear being accepted in the Beloved. Behold, he calls you. Behold, he goes before and follows you with his mercy, and has sent forth his servants into the highways and hedges to compel you to come in. Remember, then, that at such an hour, of such a day, and such a year in this place, you are all told what you ought to think concerning Jesus Christ. If you now perish, it will not be for lack of knowledge. I am free from the blood of you all. You cannot say I have like legal preachers been requiring you to make bricks without straw. I have not bidden you to make yourself saints and then come to God, but I have offered you salvation on as cheap terms as you can desire. I have offered you Christ's whole wisdom, Christ's whole righteousness, Christ's whole sanctification and eternal redemption, if you will but believe on him. If you say you cannot believe, you say right, for faith, as every other blessing, is the gift of God. But then wait about God, and who knows, but he may have mercy upon you. Why do you not entertain more loving thoughts of Christ? Or do you think he will have mercy on others and not on you? But are you not sinners? And did not Jesus Christ come into the world to save sinners? If you say you are the chief of sinners, I answer, that will be no hindrance to your salvation. Indeed it will not, if you lay hold on him by faith. Read the evangelists, and see how kindly he behaved to his disciples who fled from and denied him. Go tell my brethren, he says. He did not say, go tell those traitors. Go tell my brethren and Peter. As though he had said, go tell my brethren in general, and poor Peter in particular, that I am risen. O oh, comfort his poor drooping heart. Tell him I am reconciled to him. Bid him weep no more so bitterly. For though with oaths and curses he thrice denied me, yet I have died for his sins. I am risen again for his justification. I freely forgive him all. Thus, slow to anger and of great kindness was our all-merciful high priest. And do you think he has changed his nature and forgets poor sinners? Now he is exalted at the right hand of God? No, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and sits there only to make intercession for us. Come then, you harlots. Come, you publicans. Come, you most abandoned of sinners. Come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the whole world despises you and casts you out, yet he will not disdain to take you up. O oh, amazing, O oh, infinitely condescending love, even you he will not be ashamed to call his brethren. How will you escape if you neglect such a glorious offer of salvation? 
What would the damned spirits now in the prison of hell give if Christ was so freely offered to their souls? And why are we not lifting up our eyes in torments? Does anyone out of this great multitude dare say he does not deserve damnation? If not, why are we left and others taken away by death? What is this but an instance of God's free grace and a sign of his good will towards us? Let goodness lead us to repentance. Oh, let there be joy in heaven over some of you repenting. End quote. Happy will it be for this and for all coming ages if the men of the present day will study with all the advantages, checks, and guides of modern education the divines of the 17th century, not indeed as models of style or logic, but of intense earnestness not as writers who should teach us in all things how to think, but how to feel. I would not have the modern mind so much as the modern heart cast into the mold of these great-hearted writers. Even their theology is not to be rigidly copied, but oh, their unction, their mighty power of realization, their nearness to God, their views of eternity, so intent, so clear, so piercing, their thorough understanding of the object of their ministry, and their entire consecration of themselves to its solemn functions. Oh, that we could transcribe and make all of these our own. <laughs>